Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. August 23rd, episode 179, Serenity Now. Hello everyone, this is Kevin England. Wanted to say thanks for taking the time to come and show up for the show, give it a listen. It's a great day to explore various topics about beekeeping, and I think I have an interesting mix of things to cover for this installment. I wanted to say that I personally liked the cadence of episode 178, and while the feedback that I get about the program is, you know, kind of limited in dribs and drabs, there were some notes that came back that said the reverse design was a good way to go. Got a thumbs up, so I think we're going to make this the pattern going forward. If you didn't catch the last episode, what I'm talking about is a show redesign. The new normal will be roundtables up front, topics in the back, and the local hive report to finish up. This is going to be the last mention of the show format change, but if you'll indulge me, I wanted to share a quick reflection before starting the show. It's moving toward late August, and it looks like the signs are pointing to a fall that is coming early this year. We had such a hot July, we got a little bit of a break in early August, and now it's hot again, and even as such, Winter is coming. <laughs> That's a Game of Thrones reference. Winter is coming. I'm starting to see some leaves falling. And actually, the goldenrod is already blooming in some fields around our county. It's such an odd thing this time of year. Speaking to Bob Clawson, I said to him, you know, this would have been the week for the Hunterdon County Fair had it not been canceled. And I don't think I've ever recall us talking about Goldenrod blooming while we were at the fair. When I see goldenrod, I automatically think about that period where you're building winter bees. And I'm going to share a quick impression in roundtable number one about the timing for winter management. So more on that in just a moment. Roundtable number two is a task that often goes overlooked and honestly should really be part of your normal routine. It has to do with cleaning your bee suits. Roundtable number three centers on an adult beverage and a good cause, supporting the annual Bees Knees initiative. A notable achievement for a high school student who's attacking a problem for the bees will be roundtable number four, it's about the hive guard. And then we'll pick up with a couple topics. Topic number one is holster envy. And to round out the episode, I'll put an exclamation point on my comb renewal objective this year with a topic entitled Freshness Date. We will, of course, remember to share the local hive report to close it all down. But for now, let's get to some beekeeping topics and head to roundtable number one. Roundtable number one, I call this one Timing. In the opening, I reflected on the timing of the year and where we are in our annual life cycle for caring for bees. In recent years, I've come to believe through beekeeper experience that beekeepers are not in the right place when it comes to winter preparations. 
What I'm going to share is not going to be any large revelation, but an emphasis and a kick in the pants to those who have procrastinated. It's clear we are all motivated in different ways. For some, beekeeping is about saving the bees. For some, it's the experience and connection with nature. For others, it's about the honey. Whatever the case, underneath all of it, beekeepers have to understand that they must have profound care for their bees. Another perspective, love for bees or not, is the monetary investment. The fact is that the hives and the colonies that are inside, they're not a trivial amount of money investment and your personal time investment. With these things out in the open, I don't understand why common sense management practices are not latched onto and followed. I'm not here to shame you, but sometimes being critical is a way to resonate with someone. And if you get a guilty pang about what I'm about to say, well, consider it tough love and know that I'm not coming at it from the purpose of being harsh. The fact is, by my experience, beekeepers sometimes simply don't know this information or they just lose track of it. Now if you're a treatment style beekeeper, by that I mean you prescribe to the practice of monitoring and administering treatments when warranted, there is no more critical time of year to be proactive. And you could listen to every single basic beekeeper course and they'll tell you this. It's not an epiphany. The thing about it is though that I meet so many different beekeepers in my course of training and with our club and just online I see evidence of it and in meetings I attend that don't follow the plan. They don't get the plan. From day one, July, August is the time to check and monitor for your mites and do something about it so that you could build healthy winter bees. And time and time again, I encounter that person who's coming to us in September and saying, hmm, I didn't do anything yet with my bees. Didn't get a chance. I'm hoping they can make it through to winter. What do you think? And they ask what kind of treatment they should put on. And you could give them the guidance and tell them what they should do. Monitor, but chances are you got lots of mites. Put a treatment in but chances are your hives are already sick and they're not going to do well. And then they come back to you in the spring and say, my hive died. I'm not sure what happened. So I say this in plea for you to get your hives healthy now so that they overwinter. This is the first year because I'm backing up my treatment where I say, do as I say, and I do. <laughs> I treated my hives back in July. I was a good boy this year. And I'm going to monitor them. And I think the way that this worked is I picked a good day in July, good couple days, and I put Formic Pro on. I'm pretty confident my hives are in good shape right now. They all look good going into fall. However, from now until October 31st is quite a big window. But you know what? It happens to be somewhere around 60 days. You know what fits in a 60-day window? An Apivar treatment. So if I go in 60 days backed up from October 31st, which is around 8.15, which is this week, and I monitor my hives and I find that I have some mite threshold problems, 
I could put an apple bar in. Now we're starting to get to that point where people are saying, not me, but people, that if you find any mites, you should just treat. I did some mite treatments or some mite checks this year and found nothing, and I did some mite checks and I found something. I'm almost to the point where we're going to get to the point in the next two years where they're just going to proactively tell you to treat. And I've come to think about proactive. Last year I was good that way because I wanted to make sure my bees didn't have any chance of it. That's not my message. My message is it's mid-August. If you haven't done anything yet, you're probably already too late. If you go back to the logic of my previous discussions, August 8th, 21 days, 21 days, 21 days, 21 days. Four periods of 21 days takes you till November 1st. I'm going to keep reiterating this. Is that's when your bees need to be healthy. They need to be full. You need to be feeding them. They need to get to full winter state by November 1st. And if they have any sense of a mite problem during that duration, your hives aren't going to do well. They might eke through till spring. And you should not come January, February, even March, and wonder what happened if you have not done anything. So as this episode comes out, August 23rd, it's a week late, but it's still salvageable. Hopefully you've had the forethought to think about this and you have whatever you need in your stash so that you can go monitor your hive, and take whatever action needs to be done this week. You're already late. Okay. Throws of summer are coming to an end. Fall is right around. And the wintering program is on. Let's go. Get to it. Tuck, tuck. It's an odd way to open the show, but honestly, I feel like this sentiment is not emphasized enough. And so I'm going to go and overemphasize it. It's far easier to coach now than it is to console later. Last word on this, a really important resource, Honey Bee Health Coalition. They have the Varroa tools, which tells you everything you need to know about monitoring, selecting a proper treatment if that's your thing, and they have videos and how to and so on. Honeybeehealthcoalition.org slash Varroa. I'll have a link in the show notes. Roundtable number two, I call this one sparkling. I had a to-do item on my list that I finally turned the corner on. Sometimes you put something on a someday maybe list, and then after a while you start thinking at it, and you think, and you know, you know, why don't I just knock this thing off and get it off the list today? I have a small window of time, and I'm sick of staring at it. The task to wash my bee suits and take the extra step to see if I could get some of the dirt, grime, and mold spots out of the cloth parts of the suit. To perform the deed, I decided I wanted to hand wash the suits. I know you could put them in a washing machine, but I postulated that if I wash them by hand, I might play a role in focusing on some of the more grimy spots of the suits and get them clean to my satisfaction. A washing machine cleans the whole garment, but when you spot treat different areas that are stained, 
or ones that are really super grimy, you can get those areas cleaner. I had the thought to do this for a week or so. And as such, during that course of that week, I sought out the proper way to put it together, conduct the operation. I settled on a large tote that I had in the garage. My objective was to clean my two mesh suits and also do some freshening up of the netting for my helmet veil. I did for a moment consider placing the helmet in the liquid, but my experience in the past is if you get that wet, it really gets soft and it loses its shape. So I passed on that, pulled the helmet out, and just washed the netting part. Actually, the last time my helmet got wet, it collapsed on its own weight. And then when it dried, I had this really oblong shape that no longer fit my head any longer. I ended up having to re-wet the netting of the mesh and then set it to dry on a partially deflated soccer ball. And, you know, this is goofy to talk about, but to this day, it doesn't fit my head as well. It's not the same shape that it comes from the factory. They must somehow understand how an egg-shaped human head is versus a oval, round soccer ball. But, you know, you can rescue one of those if you get it wet and put it over a ball. Anyway, prior to the suits going in the bin, I spot treated each section, especially the sleeves and by pouring dishwashing soap on the dirtier parts. To clean the suits, I put a kettle on the boil, I placed both the suits in the bin, and I poured the kettle of hot water over the suits. Actually, I did it two, I think three kettles worth of water. And then I followed that up with two huge restaurant pots full of hot water from the kitchen faucet. Basically, you really want to have enough water to submerge the suits and cover them completely. A quick word of warning here. Given the kettle water is hot, meaning put it on to boil, don't burn yourself. <laughs> I guess if you had to, you could use a stick to push things down and not burn your skin. I, I know when I stuck my hand in there, it was pretty testy. When I had the suits wet, I moved them aside a little bit and I added a little more dish soap directly to the water. I don't know, I'm a dish soap fan. I love Dawn dishwashing detergent. I know I could have used laundry detergent in there, but what I find with laundry detergent is it tends to have this, um, I don't know if it's a softening agent or something in it. I, maybe that's what makes it clean well and I'm missing the point, but it always feels real slimy to me. And I think the dishwashing detergent, the one that I used, is degreasing, which helps the situation. So I chose that. Um, you know, if you want to choose laundry detergent, good, it's okay. Um, actually, the more practical matter was I had residual dish soap left over in the garage from when I euthanized the hive. I wanted to use it and get rid of it. So I killed two birds with one stone matter of practicality. Since both of the suits are white and so is the veil cloth, I put a little bleach in the mix. I had Sharon show me where she had her upstairs 
stash of Clorox, and I asked her to do the honors. If I had to guess, the splash she put in was about a quarter cup or less. If this all seems so unscientific, the fact is it was. <laughs> add water, add cleaning detergents, and mix. If you get it a little too soapy, so what? Um, do it by feel and you'll know what to put in. I think the stuff that you put in is more powerful than you think. So use a little bit lower amount. Don't like pour gallons of soap. You'll have a Lucy episode with bubbles all over the place. You could always add a little more later if you didn't quite get it right. As to the physical cleaning, I stripped naked and dived right in. Um, no, not really. Don't imagine that. You'll burn your corneas out. <laughs> Actually, you want to wear clothes that are disposable because with the bleach, any water that you splash on yourself, and as you're thrashing around in the bucket, you do splash water on yourself. Um, you physically reach in and rub and scrub areas with heavy grime. You know, the interesting thing about the mesh suits are they're kind of like a form of that kitchen scrubby with their texture. And they provide a good, like, you know, abrasive contrast to grab a handful of it and scrub a dirty area with the actual suit. I knew I struck pay dirt. See what I did there? When the water turned murky brown, kind of remind me of a cedar swamp water. I scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed the suits. The water was brown. I let it soak in the water. I probably should have flushed it out, but I let it soak overnight. The next morning, I came back and did more of a rub down. I figured as the suits soaked all night, it would have loosened it up and it would be I would be able to dislodge any dirt that was really in there. I ended up pouring the water out and then I used the hose to fill it and rinse the suit two or three times and at that stage they looked remarkably better. They really did. It's unbelievable. While I was inspecting the work to see how I was doing with the hose I noticed the one disappointment was the cotton area of the suits especially my Daydont one. Most of the cotton parts of the suits still had remnants of mold spots. And being that mold is like black stipple, it's really noticeable against the now bleached white fabric. I decided to take one last swing at correcting that and I pulled out a bottle of Fantastic Fabric Stain Remover with Bleach. This is not an endorsement for that. It's just a, that's what I had. I'm guessing you could use soft scrub or something else as long as it has bleach in it. And I ended up pulling those parts that needed to be cleaned, the, the sleeve ends and the collar and such, out of the water, sprayed them really well, scrubbed them really well, and let them sit outside for 20 minutes. The recommendation from the bottle was soak the material for 20 minutes and then I ended up putting them back into the water and swishing them around to get that cleaned out. I took it out, scrubbed it one more time, washed it again. I'm super happy to tell you that the suits look much better for it. Initially when I sprayed the fabric stain remover on the white part, it didn't remove it. 
when I let it sit for 20 minutes and then scrubbed it again, all of the spots, very begrudgingly I might add, came out. So in the end, any remaining blemishes on the suit are mostly wax and propolis residue that bonded to the fabric and scoffed at any notion of dislodging by these detergents that I used. I suppose if you had propolis and such, you could use isopropyl alcohol if you wanted to go even further, but I have such a little amount on it that it really didn't matter to me. The suits are white again. And in the process of the cleaning, I'm sure that any vestiges of body odor and sting pheromone were washed away with the multiple rinses. Now, the one thing I know about detergents and so on that you use, they have fragrances in them. I don't know if the bees do or don't like that. I guess it's your mileage may vary depending on what detergent you used. So I made sure I rinsed them and rinsed them and rinsed them until I got all the soap out. And then what I did is hung them on the line for a couple days and let them air dry, fresh, in the sunshine. Thinking out loud, I wonder if the bees will notice, but I've worn the suit already and didn't seem to have any problem with it. I shot a summary video of what I just described as a public service announcement out on the YouTube channel for Northwest. It doesn't tell you anything more than what I told you, but at minimum you get to see the tote in the process. So visit the show notes for a link to the video. It's called NWNJBA Video Tip Clean Your Bee Suits Occasionally. Roundtable number three, this one's called The Bee's Knees. In prior times we had a household subscription on and off to Cooking Light Magazine. I really like the recipes in that publication and I've made dozens and dozens of different dishes from issues published over the years. Sadly, a few years back they stopped publishing and went to a web format opting for a quarterly magazine format instead. I suppose I don't blame them because web ads are surely more with the times and it's how the world rolls these days. Actually, and this is speculation on my part, I think they merged with Eating Well magazine and since that publication also had a monthly issue, they rejiggered Cooking Light and now we receive, in the mail, Eating Well instead of Cooking Light. Yeah, yeah, Kevin, that's nice. Where the heck are you going with this? Um, just bear with me for one more second. Kevin moment. I saw my most favorite <laughs> iTunes review of this show the other day. This is a nod for you, Tim, if you're out there listening. It said, quote, Kevin has a unique ability to take a 15-minute topic and condense it down to 30 minutes. And in parentheses, it said, Tim moment. <laughs> End quote. I got such a laugh, I'm still giggling about that. Seriously. I know. I know, you know, there's a certain air about the way I approach this show. This is in no way a dig on you, Tim, but a reflection on style. I know this show is long. In some respects, I will admit that when I listen back to it, it even drives me nuts sometimes. It's like, God, get on with it. There's such an art to brevity and conciseness 
that, you know, if I were a professional podcaster doing this in a studio every day with a weekly release and, you know, adverts and things like that, I'm positive I'd spend the energy to tighten things up. But honestly, most times I simply let what's in my mind out and you get a true sense of how my brain works. I find that I tend to dredge things out and give you more detail, which in some respects helps people understand the backstory. It is what it is. In the end, I have postulated about this and decided that's actually a good thing. <laughs> good as in beneficial. You see, sometimes topics need room to breathe. In this world where everyone wants a sound bite, I sometimes yearn for someone to take their time and explore. And I guess the secret sauce is about whether it's beneficial or not to trudge on. And yes, I know some of my stuff is trudge. Now, I know this Kevin moment is a perfect example of this on display. I want to talk about a drink recipe. That's where I'm going. And here I am reflecting on podcast delivery style. It's kind of like one of those Forrest Gump moments. It happens. End of Kevin moment. Here we go. In the latest Eating Well issue, ah, to the point of it all, do you notice that lead-in? In the latest Eating Well issue, I noticed an ad by the National Honey Board. Full page, and I thought, damn, that's cool. I've never seen that before from the National Honey Board. There on the page is a large full hero graphic of honey spilled out onto the surface with a honeybee, pollen baskets full, and a large stylized format text script of the word honeybees in the center of the page. It's bracketed on the lower half with a statement that expresses how important honeybees are to the environment and the food supply and if you follow the text down the page it ends up trailing off to the exit of the page off in the bottom right hand corner a National Honey Board logo. What a spectacular ad! It's so amazing that it immediately caught my eye and as appealing as it was and before I registered fully that it was beekeeping related, I read the whole thing. So to whoever did that from the National Honey Board, kudos to you. As someone, me, with a graphic art, print, paint, web media background, I say you killed it on the design. I've studied layout with a passion and I think you could tell by my recount that they hit a home run. While I lingered on the National Honey Board ad, I took a moment to sweep my eyes to the article on the facing page. I want to point out for a moment that the behavior I just stated is an interesting success of that ad in its own right. I read the ad copy first and then looked to the left for the magazine feature on the facing page. So the feature on the facing page was a tie-in to the Honey Board ad. I'll spend a moment on what a tie-in is in a second. But to the feature, it was entitled The Booze and the Bees. There's a neat little story that recounts an owner of a distillery having an adult beverage with a beekeeper and the beekeeper lamenting, what is the distillery owner doing for the bees? Ryan Christensen who is the owner and head distiller of a Vermont-based distillery, Caledonia Spirits, relayed 
The beekeeper was insistent, stating, quote, he was very firm in his expectation that there was more we could do, end quote. Taking this to heart, they came up with a concept to bring awareness to honeybees. They conceived of an idea to take a classic drink from the Hades of the 1920s and make it the centerpiece of a week-long campaign to raise money for honeybee awareness. If you purchase the designated Prohibition-era cocktail known as the Bee's Knees at participating establishments for the designated week in September, a dollar of the proceeds for the drink will go to a nonprofit supporting pollinators. As a beekeeper and lover of pollinators, I love this idea. I'm not sure everyone will support the idea of alcohol consumption, but I think of it in this light. If you're going to have a cocktail, I would hope you might consider this one and support the effort. So a fair question is, what is a bee's knees? Actually, it's a pretty simple drink. Gin, honey syrup, and lemon juice. Honey syrup is not straight honey, but honey that's mixed with a little bit of water to thin it out some. It's typical to do this to honey, to get it in a syrup form because it's easier apparently to incorporate into a cocktail when shaken or mixed. The typical ratio for honey syrup is two or three parts honey to one part water and you stir it to a uniform consistency. I did a bit of research on this cocktail. I wanted to know more about it. I wasn't familiar with it. And turns out it's truly designated as a classic. There seems to be permutations or tweaks and some of the variations include a touch of orange juice and even orange bitters and other add-ins. But the classic drink is this. Two ounces of gin, three quarters ounce of honey syrup, two to one mix, three quarter ounce fresh squeezed lemon juice, and then you use a lemon twist to garnish the drink. You add all those ingredients to a chilled cocktail shaker, filled with ice, shake well and strain into a cocktail glass. The cool thing about this cocktail is, how simple is that? You know, and as beekeepers, honey is a no-brainer. A lot of people have gin on hand, and lemon juice is lemon juice, but use the fresh kind. I'm not a cocktail connoisseur, so don't look at me what kind of gin. I'm not qualified to speak on that. I'll simply leave that to your devices. Coming back to the initiative, the September campaign idea it has been growing in adoption over the last couple of years. The article alludes that they have raised $63,000 from previous campaigns. Now this year, because of COVID, they're expanding the window of the campaign to a slightly longer window, and it's going to run from September 19th to the 27th, so you still have time. I have a mission for you. I would hope that if you like this idea, you might take a moment to spread the word. To that end, I have provided a few links in the show notes. There's one about the Bees Knees Week campaign, week long, and another that shows a map of participating venues. If it moves you, take a moment to look one up in your area and partake, or simply take the time to make 
your local watering spot aware of the campaign and suggest they support it. Incidentally, when looking at the map, it's not a surprise to me that the Brick House Tavern, an establishment in our area, Hopewell, New Jersey, who's known to be a supporter of great local agriculture, is on that map. And I say kudos to them for impressing me even one more time and being engaged so much to support beekeeping, honey, farmer, stuff like that. There'll be several links in the show notes in relation to the roundtable. Check them out at bkcorner.org, episode 179. Roundtable number four, call this one JT. The story's been making the rounds on Facebook and other outlets, and for me, I found it via my beekeeping news feed this week. And that was the first instance of many I've encountered since then, so I'm guessing maybe you heard about this, but if not, I'm going to share it. In fact, while I was filing a note to talk about this in this episode, uh, Bing popped up on my computer from Jeff Teeland, JT, asking if I had heard about it. So, how about that? In my case, the coverage... I came upon stemmed from Forbes.com. The showcase, which has a lot of emphasis on student coming to the rescue of bees in trouble, features a 17-year-old Connecticut college student who has devised a way to deliver a thymol miticide to honeybee colonies through the front entrance. The device, now being called the Hive Guard, Hive, capital Guard, all one word, is termed a mitocidal beehive entranceway. As I just noted, it was devised by a 17-year-old high school student, Raina Jane of Greenwich, Connecticut, who recently graduated and is now heading to college with certainly some momentum from this occurrence. In the Forbes interview, it was disclosed that she happened to see Dr. Samuel Ramsey speak back in May of 2018 about his discovery of bees feed on fat body and it inspired her to take a look into this field of science and honeybee health. The device approach she developed employs a piece of hardware with holes in it and based on what I can observe it has a thymol infused gel that the bees come into contact with and in doing so they distribute it the product of thymol throughout the hive. Bees traveling through the entrance deposit a half microgram of thymol into the hive, which is stated to, quote, kill off the mites and not harm the bees, end quote. As mites come through the hive entrance, they pick up a tiny amount, and to me, it's not too dissimilar to the manner in which Epigard works. The gel is in a tin, and as the bees come into contact with the gel and apigard, they bring it all around the hive. Based on what I'm seeing, the device has proven to be 70% effective in lab settings, and I guess it's going to require some further work in the real world, field studies, before you can really know the true abilities. But that's really not the point. The point is, is that she took the risk to devise something that in the lab is showing promise, and that's really cool. It seems Raina has achieved some good visibility 
and a lot of interest in her work. And here's to hoping that she has a good journey and can find a way to make a product out of her invention, which is her intention. You can visit the Forbes article and I'll provide a link to her website as that provides some additional images and insights about what she has going on. On her website, you can subscribe to get more information about the progression of her invention. And I did subscribe and received an email, which I'm going to talk about real quick before I close this down. In the newsletter, it appears that she's getting some questions about when will it be available? She's in the last stages of testing right now. And when that is completed, there'll be a mass certification and production to beekeepers. One of the questions you have with the gel is, is it replenishable? Right now it's not, but they're working on a way to make HiveGuard as long-lasting and effective as possible. In her newsletter it says, testing currently shows a duration of one and a half months with no additional maintenance necessary, other than a quick one-time installation. Now one of the things people want to know is how much does it cost? I think given that she's still at early stages, I don't know how she could talk about what manufacturing and cost and shipping and all that will be. And that's kind of what's reflected in the email. So again, if you want to keep up to date on what's going on with this, you can visit the website. And from there, you can subscribe to the newsletter and get updates from Raina. Always like to hear stories like that and hopefully there'll be more to come. That's it for roundtables. Quick, done, moving on. Let's turn to the back of the book, which is now topic number one. Topic number one, I call this one draw. Hi, my name is Kevin. Hi, Kevin. It's like one of those, I'm sitting in a metal folding chair amongst all my peers. And I'm saying out loud, I have hive tool, holster, envy. And everybody is sympathetic to the plight. Let me tell you about my story. When I visit Bob Claus in his bee yard, I spend some time having holster, envy. You see, Bob, being the astute and observant beekeeper that he is, happened to purchase a Brushy Mountain Bee Farm Hive Tool Holster in the days when the company was operational. That's like a Red Rider BB gun to me. Now that that company has closed down, well, um, you can't get one. As far as Hive Tool holsters go, I've always envied the Brushy Mountain version, but the perfectionist in me never pulled the trigger on a purchase because while I like the design, there's always been one or two things about its open bottom that made me think about whether I should make the purchase or not. Silly me. To describe this thing is to tell you about a device that is fairly utilitarian. It's a simple leather flap with a slim sleeve that you slide your hive tool in. The flap has two slots at the top so you can run a belt through it and it's meant to hang off your side and lays against your leg underneath your bee suit. Now that particular holster is not the only one that has been in my sights over the years. I've seen a couple other ones that I had taken a shine to 
One was a holster invented by a Canadian beekeeper that held a hive tool, had other assorted pockets and pouches for your things, and another one was an Australian variation that is a leather flap with a different approach. It has this magnetic channel and you set your hive tool on it. And that one, man, draw. That one's like the perfect draw one, right? You could just pop it off the magnet. In some respects, they kind of remind me of my fire rescue days. Back then, I found the perfect pouch to hang off my belt when I was a rescue geek to secure a flashlight, nitrile gloves, pen, trauma shears, and other sundries. After seeing the benefit of having a hive tool at hand through observing Bob, I decided it was time to look into some sort of solution. The first thing I did was to look to see if there was some errant website selling the Brushy Mountain one. I have found that Brushy Mountain, as a practice, often resold things that others made. For example, my front porch pollen trap was actually made by a different manufacturer and Brushy also distributed it. But no such luck in the hive tool thing. When that failed, I turned to Amazon. Being the type A person that I am, I'm currently at about 30 products in a wish list in Amazon. They're all kind of like the Brushy Mountain one in some ways, but then altogether different. The funny thing is, in doing research and looking at alternatives, I've looked at tool holsters for hive tools, box knives, pliers, chef knives, cleavers, scabbards, and, well, you get the picture. Even after looking at dozens of options, I was left wanting and started to explore why? Why couldn't I make a choice after 30 of them? Why did it not meet my needs? Can't I just pick one? And that led me to rethink about what I was doing and go the other way. This is the IT manager in me and define the requirements so then I could evaluate my choices as to why they were not making me happy. So if I take that tactic, what would a match look like? To answer that question, I looked at it from what I don't like about the 20 plus that I saved in my wish list. And you know, it turns out there's surprisingly quite a few things. I'll hit the highlights. So some of the reasons for the options not tickling my fancy, the size of the pouch didn't look like it would fit the tool. The size of the pouch or the pocket is too big or too small. Maybe it won't fit. Maybe the hive tool will fall out. There's the way that it attaches to your belt. The belt attachment didn't look well formed to me on some of these. The position of the holster on your waist and how it hangs from the belt is important. One of the things that you need is something that holsters the tool low below your waist. Because if not, meaning down below the belt line a little bit, it's going to be up underneath your bee jacket. And I don't think it's going to be easy to pull the hive tool out so the holster has to have a good sense of position. There's different material options. Plastic, leather, pleather, cordon, fabric, things like that. I prefer it to be leather and easy to clean. 
it has to be reasonably be reasonably well made with rivets and stitches and so on I really prefer there to be no crazy logos and I think it would be super sexy to have a magnetic style holster but I worry that the tool will eventually and inadvertently pop off the magnet and fall out without my knowledge and I certainly don't want to run one over with the mower last but not least I'm not gonna pay 50 bucks for a tool holder and yeah there's a couple other nets but I think I've run on and on in the end finding something that suits all those requirements has turned out to be well a bit of a challenge truth be told I have one idea about a requirement that I didn't mention, but it stands as the reason that I have never purchased the Brushy Mountain one. And it has to do with the sleeve portion design of that holster. I want the pouch to hold the hive tool so that it's closed and it encases the entire hive tool. I've had so many occasions when working bees where you use your hive tool and it gets honey on it. You stick it down between a frame to free them up and it gets sticky and honey on it and of course it's not unusual for a hive tool to be coated with propolis I can't envision how an open-ended hive tool that slides through the sleeve and is hanging out metal exposed won't result in getting honey or propolis on your jeans and to my way of thinking I think it should be a self-contained pocket that creates a different problem. If it's a pocket, then the inside of the holster is going to get honey on it. Therefore, it should be probably made of a material that would be easy to clean. And better yet, it would let you separate the sleeve part from the backing and allow you the ability to wash that out if you need to do it. I'm starting to head into unicorn territory. There's one other aspect of the requirement, and that's the rationale for wanting it closed. I want to put a holster on when I'm ready to leave the house and forget it. Whether I'm going out to the local bee yard or I'm going out to train or do whatever, it should be just something strapped to your leg like you put your wallet in your pocket. If I have a utility pouch, with the hive tool hanging out, sharp edges, and I get in the vehicle, I'm going to cut my seats up or mar the plastic, and that's not going to work. Now, why not just use a hive tool? What do you do with it? I find you set it down. It, you know, how many times have you been in a session that becomes inefficient because you've taken it out and laid it down somewhere? What I've noticed with Bob Kloss and we've discussed this, is he's trying to develop the mem muscle memory to put it back every single time. Take it out, use it, and put it back. And if you continue to do that over time, you become really efficient. And I think that's great. And that's what I'm ultimately looking for is that muscle memory. And that's why a holster makes a lot of sense as a requirement. So I think you get it should be closed. Did I share I've been thinking about this a lot? I'm still on the quest and allow myself to poke around here and there. I'm allowed. Did you get that? That's a tie-in from a previous segment. 
When I find time that I'm bored on a conference call at work, sorry BMS, or something else going on, I poke around on the web. It might turn out in the end that I might try to design one to my specifications. Sounds like a good winter project and I've already hinted to Sharon that maybe Santa can bring me some tools to work leather with. I know what you're thinking. Damn it, he said all of this and he's not going to recommend a holster. <laughs> what a letdown. Okay, hold on. <laughs> For those of you that are thinking that, I have good news. I'll share that I bought something and I actually have been using it. And if good enough is perfect, it's worked out okay. The device is a garden tool holder made by a company called CLC. Charlie Lima Charlie. It's the CLC Work Gear Number 418 Leathercraft Tool Holder. And looking over the design, it has most of the characteristics I was lamenting about. It's the right length, it's leather construction. It has a closed bottom and get this it was six bucks <laughs> so there's no buyer's remorse in testing it the leather by the way is untreated or maybe it's just lightly oiled but what i like about it is i immediately went and got my homemade leather paste that i designed with beeswax and i rubbed it down and it and it has a really nice texture in fact i have it right here in front of me and it gave it a nice color and it made it impervious to honey and whatever is my guess. So the 418 almost fits the bill except for some small nits. For my taste, the pouch that the hive tool sits in is simply too large. The width of the pouch is meant to hold a pair of pliers. And as designed, it would be absolutely perfect for that. But when it has a hive tool sitting in it, it flops around too much for my liking. I'm concerned that, I don't know how I'd bend over so much, but it's possible it could pop out because it's not really secure in there. So for the purpose of holding a beekeeper's hive tool, the pouch needs to be a little less roomy. As a form factor though, I think it has a lot of potential. And now, I'm going to wear it in hopes that I'll develop the muscle memory that Bob had with his until I come up with something better. I don't know whether I'll make it or find it, but my hope is that by next spring I'll be sporting something that will be the envy of all the cool kids. If you want a closer look to my journey, I have something to share. For starters, look in the show notes for a link to the one that I purchased, the CLC model. And while you are there, you can also access the link I provided to an open Amazon wish list that has the 20 plus different candidates that I looked over and saved for my idealist. And, you know, one last thing. If you know of the perfect hive tool holster that meets my requirements, or maybe yours, give it up. At minimum, if you have any requirements rattling around in your head, about what the perfect hive tool is, drop me off a note, kevin at bkcorner.org. If I do end up designing one, perhaps those requirements can be added in and we can get that design reproduced somewhere. So the CLC Leathercraft Custom 418 Heavy Duty Plier Tool Holder 
and a link to the Holder Idea List on Amazon can be found in the show notes. Topic number two, I call this one Freshness Date. I'm told on occasion that I am an influence on others, and as such, that bears a lot of influence on me and what I do and say. I could be paid no better compliment than someone sharing that they heard something I said and took it to heart and it produced a positive outcome for them. As you might imagine, I have received quite a bit of feedback over the years, both pro and con, and there's a reasonable amount that say back to me that they've heard some of my public service announcements and heeded the call, which by the way I had one in the beginning of the episode, and it's done well by them. That makes me happy. It helps to know that what I've shared is making a positive impact. This year I've been sharing tidbits of a proactive change that I've been making in my own practice. That's such a stupid thing to even talk about, but requires considerations. For long-term listeners, I'll give you a second to guess what I'm going to say. I had a conversation with Bob Kloss last week and he shared with me that he had a cathartic day recently where he went through his stockpile and cleaned out his old equipment. Like most beekeepers who have been at this for a decade or more, both of us, I'm guilty of it too, accumulate too much stuff. Bob mentioned to me that he had old ratty equipment, gadgets, gizmos he'll never use or never used and will not use any further and comb lots of old comb. I finally win. <laughs> I've been beating on him all year like, Bob, you got to get rid of your old comb. It's just made a huge difference for me personally. If you've been listening to the program, you know that I've been on a quest. I come to believe what everybody already knows. If you give a colony new comb, in combination with what makes it even better a fresh new queen the whole colony gets a new lease on life i talked earlier in the season about my goofy bailey shook intention and in the end it finished up with a pretty reasonable facsimile of that plan my destination was achieved more by doing splits and building new hives out with foundation than shaking bees out so that they could come back in their own hive. But philosophically, I guess, it's really kind of the equivalent of shaking bees out, but just into another box. If I count the ways, if you've ever seen my yard, I have concrete blocks set up in eight pads. My hives on pad one, two, three, five, six, seven, and eight all have new comb and the populations and resources in every one of them is spectacular here in August. These are the strongest hives I've ever had bar none in any August and I'll acknowledge that yes we had a good year spring wise but I really think the new comb made a difference. Bob on the other hand has shared that he struggled some this year especially with raising queens and he's not quite sure what the mix is but decided to follow my lead because it's possible that it could be his old comb impacting the work he's doing and if you could eliminate that risk why wouldn't you 
and he's doing it just like I did. He told me that he's discarding over 100 frames out of his stockpile. I didn't count how many frames I did, where I cut out the old crusty brown comb, but I'm pretty sure I did 100 plus too. In fact, achieved a milestone last week as I finally finished all of my medium supers and I have but two or three deep boxes to go before I get to the last of it. It's been a project all year long. I'm super excited about the fact that Bob's following the lead because I think next season we can learn how his interest in culling comb will serve in his operation. I feel like I have convinced him to try it and I can't wait to observe if there's a turnaround in the health of his colonies also and robustness and all the things that go with it. I think that's what I see in my yard. If the two of us do it year after year and we both see this, then it becomes, you know, a duh moment. I have to take a moment to talk about this as some are thinking, well, duh. How is it that you have such old comb laying around? Everyone knows you're supposed to get rid of old stuff. I say to you not so fast on that. I ask beekeepers all the time about this dynamic. I get sheepish admissions that 9 out of 10 do the same thing. They hoard comb. There's this little collective conflict in the universe when it comes to cherish the option to have drawn comb at your disposal. You know how hard it is to get it versus the work it takes to slow down your operation and actually go through the process of culling and rebuilding wax comb stores by supplying bees in the middle of the function, meaning springtime when they're roaring, with foundation combs. It sets your hives back. It's a lot of work too, and I can only imagine what it might have been like, honey-wise, if I didn't have my bees building comb all this spring instead of focused on storing honey because I had drawn comb to give to them. Now for me, I'm not in it for the honey and the health of the bees is more important and also my sanity because if the hives are struggling, you're not a happy beekeeper. I see it this way. I'm protecting my investment and survival is a big factor in this. In the end, I had to have a good number of Maria Conda moments. Thank you for your service. The cool thing is I melted quite a bit of wax this year, another thing that I've been talking about as a result, and I learned about that, quite a bit about that in return. Uh, Kevin moment. I had to explain to Bob who Maria Kondo is. And I'm not sure that the reference is as well known as I think it is. I thought it was pretty widespread, but given Bob's reaction of not having a clue, perhaps it was more localized than I imagined. Maria Kondo became a sensation because of her method for cleaning and tidying up. So many people were able to clean out their disorganized closets this year because of her psychological aid of holding up a piece of, say, 1990s memorabilia, a jacket, jeans, whatever it is, and letting go. 
by giving yourself permission to appreciate the good times you had in that members-only jacket, Jordache jeans, and thanking him for that. Then you could just discard it knowing you gave it. It's just appreciation before you put it in your goodwill bag. It's really kind of a clever approach. I practiced a Maria Kondo moment the other day when I pulled out one of my Ratty Gateway Hive boxes and I thanked it for its service. I'm retiring it. And I found a way to recycle it, so that's even better. So follow the wisdom of Maria Kondo and thank your comb for its service to the colonies that came before it. And then get out the knife and cut it out for the festering, no good, dirty substrate that it is. I said that last part in case you were thinking of somehow cherishing it instead. End of Kevin moment. Fresh comb here, fresh comb there, fresh comb everywhere, all the time. This and young queens, two stupidly simple constructs in beekeeping, and if we only kept ourselves honest about this, we would be so much better off. I am marking all my frames with the year the foundation was put in service, or for that matter, foundationless frames. And from now on, I vow hyper vigilance, call comb in three years, period, has to go. That's what I'm going to do. And I really think this is going to have, all kidding aside, a profound impact on the health of my bees. I'm starting to believe that giving the bees a job to build fresh wax really has a significant amount to do with colony buildup, strong colonies, foraging, all this other stuff. Again, this is not an epiphany. It's just we tend to sometimes, as you get older in your beekeeping years, get lackadaisical about this. That's my opinion. Before I move on, I have to give a nod to Jim, too, and tie up one of the things I shared a moment ago. In a recent bee culture magazine, Jim's feature had an idea for recycling old bee equipment. And in this case, I'm talking about the rotted corner gateway hive that I pulled out of rotation. The box has seen better days. It's no longer suitable as a container of bees but the wood still has enough structural integrity for being repurposed as a sit stool. Jim showed the idea of cutting out one of the long sides. You turn it perpendicular for the purpose of providing support to the three remaining sides. The remaining long side and its two short sides, when you sit long side up, make a good sit stool and with the extra reinforcement firm up, well, it makes a novel piece. So picture the design, a short side running vertical, the long side of the horizontal facing the earth, and then the short side going down. Under the long side and perpendicular to the flat plane is the cutoff piece resting flush underneath. If you screw through the short sides, you can screw into the ends of the support and you have a bench. You can, of course, consider some support boards to make it even sturdier. It's hard to explain in narrative, but I hope that you got it. Got it. It's a simple idea. And, you know, for a beekeeper garage, it's a novel little sit stool. Use it in a garage, use it in a garden, or maybe even set it out in the bee yard for those days you want to sit and observe. Just be sure to clear the handhold of any collected water. 
or you'll have a wet tuchus. So refresh your comb. That's what we learned today, ladies and gentlemen. And I hope you have been convinced. And I hope next year I have good news to report on both of our operations that will back up this suspicion that it's not something you should take lightly, but build into your practice and commit to. Topics over. Only had two of them for this episode. Going to roll in, roll into the local hive report. I'm going to run through the pads. Pad number one, scale hive, all medium hive. Haven't been in this hive um, for a little bit, but I know that it looks pretty strong, flying pretty well. And the last time I looked at it, they were building solidly all three boxes, and this is how I think I'm going to overwinter it. One of the things I want to do is add a feeder to it and just make sure that they have what they need to get fat and happy for winter. Uh, they look like they came out pretty well after the formic treatment. Pad number two is a five-frame nuke. It's three boxes, three deeps, five over five over five. Not too long ago, a week and a half ago, I stuck a middle box in between two really happening boxes. This hive is just banging. The other day I went to feed it. It has a brushy mountain feeder on it. I didn't smoke it. I popped the feeder up and got two stings for my pleasure. Um, I'm just trying to feed it and get it to go. I think inevitably I will put this in a polystyrene nuke to overwinter. And I'm going to pull the middle box out that I put in to help me with one of the nukes, which I'll talk about later. Pad number three is a six over six over six polystyrene nuke. This was the top bar nuke. I had it down on pad number eight. I used it to build the top bar frames, which happened successfully. And then I moved it into this and the box is booming. Again, given what I'm trying to do is make sure this colony can be all that it can be. I've been feeding it. Pad number four is the eight frame hive. It's two eight frame boxes, two medium or two deeps. This hive took quite a bit of hit from the Formic Pro. And this weekend I'm going to go in it and see how the colony has rebounded. My guess is it had uh, quite a bit of brood mortality from the treatment, but given what I know, it should even out. This box was a watch, and it's probably the weakest hive I have in the yard right now, but I'm confident with feed, and I have been feeding it, that it should be okay. Pad number five is the cedar hive. It's a conventional 10 frame Langstroth 10 over 10. The reason I call it cedar hive is instead of being made of pine, it's made from cedar. This hive is banging. In fact, one of the things I think I might do, just because I'm going to see if it works, is put another 10 frame box of foundation on it and see if the bees will build me anything in that in the interim. They've already got what they need to go into winter with bees and stores and why not give them a task to do since they're really going to town 
on pad number seven one two three four five six seven is the layens hive haven't opened this up since treating it one thing i want to do is pull that last frame out and put a follower board in it see if i can free that up but honestly i almost think i'm just going to let this hive be and wait till next spring to go in and do anything with it since it seems to be in good shape the bees are on both entrances the box is chock full i know they are fresh and did fine i think it's in a good way pad number seven is the polystyrene 10 over 10 with two mediums on top this weekend i'm going to pull the mediums and see what's in them but that hive was doing great last time i looked the last one is pad eight this is now the top bar hive i recently restructured some of the comb in there pulled some of the drawn comb further into the box and put plain top bars in between drawn comb and have seen them build them out very successfully we're supposed to have some sort of dearth here in august usually uh, mid-July to late August not this year in fact my scale hive and my uh, broodminder scale underneath the cedar hive continue to show the hives are adding weight we did not have a dearth here in New Jersey in July August that's not to say one can't come but as I mentioned on the outset goldenrod is here already and around my yard I have plenty of plants going to town and the jewelweed is up and I see the bees and everything else working it so if I count through one through eight only the pad four eight frame is a dud the rest of them all are pretty good on the metal stand behind my hives there are now four nukes there's one five frame nuke it came from a three frame queen castle yeah it's gonna take a lot to get that going next to it I literally moved it in today Bob Kloss brought two hives for me from the mating yards there's a six over six polystyrene it appears to be queenless I'm going to let it settle down in the yard. It just got moved in today. And then I'm going to go through it and double check that it's queenless. If it is queenless, I think I might take one of the boxes and put it on the five frame I just spoke about to make it a two, two uh, stack box. And take the other one and put it on the next one I'm going to talk about. Sitting next to that double poly six over six is another six over six. This one has a queen and it's building out. These are one of the Nyko queens that we reared. Next to it is another queen that we reared and this colony the queen's in it but she's not doing a thing. This was a two frame queen castle and they just don't have a lot of bees in it and it could be the reason why. So if the six over six the second one that I talked about on the metal stand is queenless I might split it in half and give it to the two single layer nukes in order to build them up. The funny thing is, is the hive that sits on 
pad number two. It's a five over five over five. And the hive that sits on pad number three is a six over six over six. The middle boxes were actually supposed to go on those two single nukes to build them up. That was the plan. If that one hive, the six over six, does not have a queen, I might split it and give the other two boxes bees, which should help them go, and resources, and then I won't need those on two, pad two and three, and maybe I'll just go to winter with a three deep box. Still got plenty of time. It's still 85 degrees out. Uh, summer's still here. I could keep making my plans. I might even actually go source a queen somewhere if I could find one for that six over six nuke because I have so many bees it would make a fine colony and it's still plenty good to get into winter. So still working through some of that stuff but it's fun to have options and things to play with. Local hive report things are looking good. The yard is mowed. <laughs> All the pads are um, you know Weed whacked. It's the best I've ever seen in August. The one thing I haven't done yet is mite checks. Meaning I did my treatments, but I never got the monitor. I had a little oopsie with my right ankle. I strained, sprained the Achilles tendon on the back of my right heel, and I have not been able to walk. Earlier this week, I was wearing a boot, and I was in severe pain. And the good news is after an x-ray and a doctor visit, it's a strain sprain, not a rupture or any of that. But I'm going to have to stretch that ankle out for about a year to see if I can free it up and get it going. But it's been twinging me all week and as such I have not been out working the bees at all. A uh, little bit better today, thankfully. And I continue to work on it, but um, yeah. That's why I have not been in cracking the hives open. So local hive report, things look good. Um, happy with where I'm at. I'll continue to feed. That's something I'm doing right now. One to one until I switch over to two one later this fall. But right now I'm just trying to make sure I keep my populations up. Everything looks the best I've ever seen it in August. I'm knocking on wood hoping that you know things stay this course and we have a good uh, fall into winter and we'll finally get a good spring so local hive report check things are looking really good I think I'm going to shut the episode down here um, covered what I wanted to do just want to talk about one more thing real quick before I finish the closing comments one thing that I've been really good at this year is keeping track of my hive inspection sheets I'm proud to say that every single hive inspection I've done of every hive all the ones I just ran through every maintenance activity and inspection is remarked I have records of all of them in conjunction with the hive inspection forms I have tracked my next action forms which tells me when I'm going back out to the yard what I have to do. I'm not sure how you do this in your operation whether you keep a journal you keep it all in your head or whatever but I do find at times that it's refreshing 
I did this the other day with one of my hives to go back and look through what happened and you get a oh yeah and it's only because you took notes that you can reminisce about where the hive came from how it got to be where it's at and what you have going on through the year so that's an interesting dynamic too that uh, last year in 2019 I made a pact with myself that I was going to do it and fell short and this year I've been on my game and I have not missed one so every single one of those colonies that I just mentioned I have good hive inspection records for them where the queen came from, what state they were, what maintenance I've done and so on so yeah I, I get an A plus for that this year um, I did a meeting recently for North Carolina, the frame game. I redid the frame game. It was good, but now it's better. I'm really happy with the way that it progressed. And I'll be doing that again later this year for Northwest. That's kind of cool. We have Tuckabee coming into a Northwest meeting. Not sure if you know who Tucka is, but she's pretty popular these days. You see her in some of the B magazines, and she's certainly popular on social media. She worked a while with Michael Palmer, and she does some stuff with Sam Comfort, both notable beekeepers, and is interesting in the work that she's doing in her own right. Highly recommend that you subscribe to her on Instagram. Uh, Tucka's got a lot going on and she's fun to follow alright that's it that's all I think is fit to print like our beloved bees when beekeepers go together we can accomplish great things thanks for listening everybody and be well